From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Hey, Janet, what makes you hopeful about the world? Well, there's so many challenges, but actually I've been reading about climate change and evolution And it's really interesting. There's already evidence that organisms are changing, evolving incredibly quickly in response to climate change. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So that gives me, you know, quite a lot of optimism. But obviously, our modern world is incredibly complex. And and we talk about that a lot on the podcast. So it'd be really great to find out where we can be more hopeful because solutions are actually coming. And that's one of the topics that today's guest thinks a lot about. And his answer is to identify and follow the talent. He also recently co-authored a book about talent, specifically how to identify people who will bring energy, creativity, and care to solving big problems. And of course, that's incredibly topical. MGI has recently published a report on human capital and how it's developed in the world of work. So I'm fascinated to hear what he has to say. Tyler Cowan is the Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason University, and he's also the director of the Mercatus Center, a research center that advances knowledge about how markets work to improve people's lives. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'd love to start with, how did you end up where you are today? Where did you grow up? What did you study? What are the things that sort of led you to where you are? I was born in northern New Jersey, where I grew up. Very early in life, I was a chess player. That shaped how I think a great deal. I quit chess completely at age 15. By 14, figured I wanted to be an economist. And since then, I've worked on a lot of different projects, not just academic ones. But I think of myself as a creator of ideas in internet space now, most of all. You never play chess anymore? I watch chess, so I love Magnus Carlsen. But yes, I literally never play chess. It's an, it's an all-or-nothing thing. And by the time you get older, it's better just not to do it, I would say. Got it. Why is that? Well, it's somewhat addictive, right? So if it's going to be your thing, that's fine. But my things are economics and talent and reading and writing on the internet and travel and also food. And I think those are ultimately more rewarding to do. But to watch chess in an open browser window and devote five to ten minutes a day to watching the game... It's still a lot of fun, and it's a nice break from work. Fascinating. Well, you mentioned talent. You recently co-authored a book with uh, Daniel Gross entitled Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World. What was the central thesis of this book? That talent is remarkably important, that we're doing a poor job misallocating talent, and there are a variety of ways outlined in the book we can do better. So this book tries to be, you know, the talent book, a one-stop shopping guide to how to think about identifying talent. What are the macro implications of this lack of good matching? You know, is this a potential for accelerating productivity, for instance? Um, We have slower economic growth when we don't match talent well. We have a lower level of per capita income. When a recession comes, as was the case in 2008, labor markets adjust much more slowly. So the consequences for human welfare are considerable. Also, if one thinks about women or minorities, you get persisting injustices because we're not in every way good at identifying talents in those areas either. So identifying talent better, it's one of the most important things we could do. And at a global level, there are billions of people 
who don't have the opportunities they could have. Work from a distance is enabling some of that. But all of a sudden, there's a mad scramble on to find all this talent and put it to work. And so, you know, there's this old phrase about, you know, talent being highly distributed, but opportunity not being so. Your book is a bit of a how-to book, not a bit, it is a how-to book. How widely do the prescriptions within the book have to be applied in order to, you know, achieve matching that's actually going to matter at a high level? Well, I think one lesson of the book is to always consider the context you are operating in. So the interview questions you should ask in one part of the world or for one sector are not always the same you should ask for another sector. But there are some very general principles that that mostly hold true. And one of them would simply be to engage people conversationally, to get them out of the interview mode, to do something other than test for their advanced prep, which rapidly becomes boring for everyone. And yourself, get used to the notion of being surprised and dealing with different cultures. It could be a different culture in South India, or it could be a different culture, you know, in West Virginia. It varies, but to have a greater breadth of mind as an interviewer and be culturally much more open. And that's good advice for dealing with people just about everywhere. It makes tremendous sense. Uh, I'm curious, though, you had mentioned previously the challenges that women and in some cases, ethnic minorities, other folks for whom sometimes in an interview context, you know, latent or other biases might manifest themselves. You'd also talked in the book about, you know, structured interviews, these ideas that you ask the same question, have a rubric for scoring them, that in some cases described as trying to, you know, and one way to mitigate those types of biases. And yet you suggest that maybe those aren't necessarily the best things as you talk about being open to surprise and asking these conversational types of questions. How do you think about those two things, this idea that there are bureaucratic ways to address these types of you know, long-term biases, as well as your ideas around how to, how to have a conversation that creates surprise? Bureaucracy is inevitable, especially when you're hiring large numbers of people. You very often, you need a standardized process. It's not even a matter of choice. But that said, when you have one, whether you like it or not, you end up selecting for credentials. For my heart surgeon, I actually want credentials. But for a lot of opportunities, credentials may be overrated, especially at a global level. So at the margin, Daniel and I advocate that people attach more weight to unstructured interactions. It may even just be how you chat with someone in the three minutes before the structured interview starts. Or maybe you met them some other time at a conference and you have memories of a highly unstructured interaction we both think the unstructured interactions are so much more informative, and especially for leadership, leadership positions or more important positions, that what you really want to do is develop an understanding of when the person is simply talking about things. What is their level of detail? What is their degree of enthusiasm? How well do they understand the social hierarchies they're somehow engaged with? It could be their model train hobby. But you will learn more than if you simply, flatly, mechanically ask them, could you please tell us about a mistake you made at an earlier job? Everyone is ready for that question. Everyone has their little anecdote. It makes them look self-critical, but not too terrible. It's fine to ask it, but you're just not going to learn that much, and mainly you're testing for prep. And so if you do have these 
insights you didn't expect necessarily. And in many cases, you have multiple interviewees, multiple interviewers. How do you calibrate that all together as you're making a hiring decision, you know, this candidate versus that candidate? What's the team way that you integrate these insights? Again, it depends a great deal on the structure of the interaction. So if it's venture capital, I'm very much a fan of the model, not to look for consensus, but if there's one person who is extremely enthusiastic to go ahead and fund the project, you're looking for tails, so to speak. Maybe only 2% of your investments will go very well, but that means you have to take a lot of chances. Now, if you're trying to hire, say, a CFO for a reasonably large corporation, that is not the correct way to do it, right? What you want is someone who is extremely conscientious and who actually will be trusted by a lot of other members in the organization. In that case, you probably would go for a more consensus approach. But what I see in labor markets is more and more sectors are taking on properties of the venture capital approach, where a relatively smaller percentage of the employees add more and more of the value. And at the margin, people ought to be nudged in the direction of greater risk-taking, less bureaucratization, realizing that not everyone should have a veto in your interview process, and that some people will ex ante have to be taught to accept the idea that someone they objected to maybe is going to be hired anyway. So to pre-invest in trust is really the thing you need to do in those circumstances. Pre-invest in trust in the interviewers or the hiring group in order to say, look, I you know, didn't, wouldn't have picked that person as my number one choice, but someone thought that was a terrific person. Let's bring them on, take on that risk. And to say to someone, you know, with with trust, well, I understand your objection to this candidate, but we see the upside and we're going to take a chance in this case and not have the trust within the organization be broken. So that's something you have to do preemptively. If you just wait until the last minute and then upset everyone by picking a candidate some of them don't like, probably it won't go that well, even if the candidate is perfectly fine. So pre-existing investments in trust, trustworthiness, and also building out your soft network of contacts so your institution has the opportunity to take a lot more chances. Those are the things that institutions need to do. It's interesting, right? Your co-author is a, a venture capitalist. There are different asset classes, and their portfolios are constructed differently. You know, you have uh, index funds, and then you have VC funds where, you know, whatever, one in 10 is is a outright success, and the others all are failures. Are you suggesting that, you know, in the spectrum of hiring decisions, we ought to move towards higher levels of risk in general in organizations that, as you've observed them? With caveats, again, I don't want my heart surgeon to be hired on that basis. But do I see the world as a whole as becoming more like tech, needing to look more for globalized talent, seeing a relatively smaller percentage of top workers adding a higher percentage of the value that is absolutely the world I observe. Again, with qualifications, context always matters, but yes, on average. You'd also authored a book, as, as we talk about a smaller number of people, and, and my colleagues have observed that too from a con- consulting perspective, creating more of the value within an organization. Your book entitled Average is Over, and it suggested, in fact, and again, you should tell me if I'm, I'm misreading it, that in fact, you will have these superstars and others have observed this as well, of course. And then 
you know, arguably some of the the average, the middle might be hollowed out. Is is that our future in the in the labor market? I would put it this way: for the world as a whole, income inequality has been falling fairly radically. So many parts of the world that were quite poor now have quite a few well-to-do people or middle class, or even the poor people are just much better off, not living off a dollar a day, but actually subsisting in some meaningful way. So to the extent one cares about income inequality, that is going down, and that is good news. It is nonetheless the case, as you indicate, that within organizations, or in many cases within countries or within particular regions, income inequality is going up. So, for instance, the very best-selling author, J.K. Rowling, she will be making more relative to the average author than might have been the case 30 or 40 years ago. So we have this weird duality, inequality going up in some ways, down in others. I don't think it's a perfectly ideal picture, but if you're managing an organization, it's one you need to be realistic about. And to maximize value for the world, you do, in fact, want to hire the most talented people. You're not doing the world a favor by, you know, leaving them out there doing something less valuable than what they could be doing. That absolutely makes sense from a corporate leader standpoint. If you put on your social welfare hat, how do you think about the evolution of of uh, labor forces? Again, as you said, on a global basis, we have you know many people who are no longer living in poverty, which is an amazing development. And as you've described, economic growth as being a an imperative for the species, I guess. But you do see these localized places where there are folks you could argue are being left behind, even if if you know they're experiencing some growth in incomes over time. Any reflections, thoughts, sources of optimism about, or, or maybe that's just the way the world is. I think it's perfectly fair to argue that our government or other governments should take actions they're not currently taking. I don't have all the answers there. Some policy moves to me seem quite easy and obvious, like Medicaid expansion in more states, right? Most states have done it. Some states haven't. The ones that haven't could do it. It's, it's very simple. It would just take one, one signing of the pen. We know how the program works. But if you're asking, well, how do we get many fewer Americans to take opioids? Again, whatever we should do, it seems to me far less simple. And we could make a lot of progress in those areas, but I don't necessarily think I know how. Got it. Let me ask another question. You've also written about uh, excess credentialism, and you mentioned credentials earlier on. You and others have talked about the fact that more and more occupations now have a four-year degree requirement, which doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of the skills that somebody needs to have. Others have suggested we need to move more towards a skills-based labor market, basically reforming the credentials so that they're more closely related to the skills necessary in a job. Um, I'd love to get your reflections. Is that a possible path forward in terms of being able to better match in addition to being able to interview better? There's one simple move that the state of Maryland has taken and other states have not yet followed suit, but that is to take literally thousands of state government jobs that do not in any obvious way seem to require a college degree. It could even be you know, a tall taker and abolish the requirement for a college degree. Now, that's a simple step. It's not going to solve all the problem or even 3% of it, but it's clearly a no-brainer once you think about it. 
So we should start with the no-brainers, teach people that there's nothing sacred about a four-year college degree, have employers in some cases take more chances on, say, people who are formerly incarcerated or maybe mothers who left the labor force or who didn't finish college. Uh, There's an awful lot of talent in those individuals, but we keep on asking for more and more credentials. My father ran a chamber of commerce very successfully. He had no college degree. That's unthinkable today. It was one of, I think, the 10 largest chambers in the United States. He barely got through high school, was nonetheless charismatic, maybe, you know, irregular in some ways. He never did his homework. But the things he was good at, he was very good at. And it's harder to be like that today. How did this happen? You know, it was all the good people who did it, not the bad people. So college overall is a good thing, right? It's great if people can go to a good college, get through college. But the cumulative effect of everyone moving in that direction has been excess stratification, too much credentialism, caring about college for its own sake, too much homework. High school is too much something about how to get into a college. And I think the whole system now is just fundamentally off track. It's not about curiosity and learning. It's about the next set of hurdles. But at the end of the whole thing, we're never quite sure what the goal really is anymore. Let's pull on this thread about uh, about talent development. Actually, some of MGI's research on human capital finds that human capital is about two-thirds of the wealth of an average individual, and that work experience, the skills you derive past your formal education, contribute about half that value across a number of different countries that that were studied. Um, To what degree can talent, as you are screening for and trying to match better, be something that one develops over time? Talent requires development. If all you end up with is what you start out with, you're you're not going to be good really at anything. Uh, One of our main problems is too many people too quickly get on tracks that are rather flat, that don't have much of a potential upward curve. And this in turn gets capitalized into individual expectations. People think of themselves as not better than something. They think of themselves as people maybe who never would start a business or who never would be very successful or who never would do better than how their parents did. And once you're in these what I call psychological traps, it's oddly hard to get out of them. So external forces can do it. You could meet a mentor. You could have a formative experience at college. But most people actually don't get out of them. And I don't think we think carefully or explicitly enough of how can we bend upwards everyone's what I call aspiration curve so they can strive for higher and better things. That actually tracks very well with the MGI research too, which shows that you know those who have moved up, say income quintiles, for instance, are typically those who have changed roles to ones where new skills were necessary, and that's what helps build them. You mentioned mentors. What are the types of catalytic events or contexts that encourage or allow people to make those jumps to to or change their aspirations, as you said. I think for many young people in particular, one of the best things you can do for them is just to send them to an event, but send them to an event that has some top talent in whatever is the field they care about. They may not get one-to-one time with that talent, but they will absorb the energy of that talent. They'll see how that person presents, how they carry themselves, what kind of charisma they have. The idea of top talent will become emotionally vivid to them. So just sending people to events, 
is one thing. Uh, better yet, if the person can get a mentor, that's harder, right? It's costlier, but that's better yet. And if the person can get a small group of peers who work on a similar problem, I call this the small group theory. Beatles are a classic example of this. They all loved music. They worked together. They made each other much, much better. The tech world, you see so many examples of this, small groups of programmers or people with a startup working together. So more mentors, more small groups, and more people going to events and just seeing how good the really good people are. What events do you send people to who are interested in economics? There is a young woman, I believe she's 17 years old. She wanted to go to a biomedical conference in Belgium. And, you know, I'm not sure she literally didn't have the money, but she's the daughter of immigrant parents. I had the sense they were not a, a very wealthy family. And for the monetary constraint there to be eased, so in my program called Emergent Ventures, we just sent her enough money to go and take the trip and hang out with top biomedical scientists and just see them. And that to me is more important than whatever factually she might have learned at the conference. So I do a great deal of that with my own programs. Just send young people places, pay for it, make it easy for them. What is Emergent Ventures? Emergent Ventures is a program I founded four years ago. It is an attempt to debureaucratize philanthropy. So there's an application page. It's online. You can Google right to it. It's basically one page. It never asks where you went to school. No CV is required. There are no letters of recommendation. It's basically write something for me and tell me what you're up to. And I see if someone can impress me. And if so, there's then uh, a Zoom call, which may or may not go well, and possibly uh, awards. That's Emergent Ventures. We operate at 2% of overhead, which is far less than most of the rest of philanthropy. And how would you describe the degree of success you've had with it? It is not for me to judge. I find it enormously exciting. A lot of our winners are still very young. So this young woman who went to Belgium, I mean... We cannot yet judge her a success or, or, or failure. Just someone emailed me this morning, someone I had forgotten about. He says, thank you for having taken a chance on me. We've now raised $27 million. And I hadn't heard from him. Sometimes it's the people you never hear from who are doing the best. And he's doing fantastically well. There's a nonprofit we initially funded called Recidiviz, which uh, has been very successful in getting people out of jail during COVID times. That's a nonprofit. There's a testing company called Curative that at its peak was doing about 11, 12% of all U.S. testing for COVID. They got their start with money from us. Uh, many other examples. We have a whole branch of it now called Emergent Ventures India, which is solely India-focused. It is run by an Indian woman, not by me. But I just went to India to our meetup event and met everyone, thought they were phenomenal. What's the market failure or a philanthropic market failure that, that Emergent Ventures is addressing? Is it just the bureaucracy of applying for funding? Is it? It's hard to apply for small grants. If you're very young, maybe you don't even think of applying, or there's not a simple way your application actually will be processed and taken seriously. But you have foundations with very large staffs, people not wanting to fire their staffs. They get captured by their staffs. They're friendly with them. So they don't really take many chances. 
They want projects whose outputs can be easily measured across a short to medium run. Those may be good projects. I'm not against measuring value created, right? Uh, but at the same time, it leaves holes for weirder, younger, smaller requests that Emergent Ventures tries to pick up. And do we need more of this? We need more of this, absolutely. The good news is that a lot of philanthropies actually have copied Emergent Ventures. A lot of the effective altruist givers, uh, the way they've set up their giving, heavy reliance on scouts, minimum of bureaucracy, quick decision, low overhead, willingness to take chances. So it is being copied and it's spreading. And I find this very heartening. So the EA folks also are known for doing lots of analysis about you know, benefits and all these you know, discussions about what discount rate you should use and all these sorts of things. How does that square with this idea of quick decisions for small amounts? Is it that an EA practitioner would say, look, these are the, the areas in which I want to fund. And if someone applies for a small grant, a young person with a small grant, I'm just going to go for it because I know that that's a place that needs more innovation. I like what they do, but my approach is somewhat different from theirs. As I understand what they do, they first identify key areas that they think are super important. It could be anti-malaria, it could be bed nets, it could be, you know, limiting evil AI from taking over the world. And then you look for people in those areas. I'm not opposed to that, but it's not what I do. I'm much more person first. I'm willing to consider not any area. It ought to feel important. But I view it as more an investment in the person, and I have, I think, more faith that the person's own understanding of what's important will very often be better than mine. So that would be the difference. And so VCs describe this sometimes as funding the team, all right? And, and that's yeah. how I view it, yes. Yeah. And they're somewhat more, I don't mean to speak for them, but to me they look like more funding the area because we've decided, well, animal welfare is important or this is important. And I, I'm not even saying I disagree with all of their rankings. I just think it's so hard to find people who will succeed at all that it's a luxury I feel I don't quite have. I want to go first with the successful people, and they have a whole career of doing great things, and they may get to these other areas later on, but I want to start with elevating the success first, not the area. What is it you're looking for? Curiosity, enthusiasm, caring about things, a sense of self-potency, being different, maybe being someone who cannot fund themselves through ordinary mechanisms. I just had a call with an individual in Mexico who is creating videos in Spanish to explain economics to other people in Mexico. And uh, we will be funding him at some level. And he's just out there, you know, no formal affiliation, really no one else to support him. He's worked very hard so far. I'm not sure he can make this sustainable. Like, in a way, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. But I see the, the fire in the belly, and I think he'll do good things in some way. And to give him a vote of confidence and some actual support, I'm all for it. Let's, let's swing, you know, from the opposite side of the spectrum, if you don't mind, from, you know, individuals who have great promise to these broader ideas. Um, you had a blog, blog post uh, where you described state capacity libertarianism and contrasted it with another somewhat similar view. What is it? I would put it simply, for those of you not familiar with all the arcane terms, 
I'm a big believer in capitalism, but I'm also a big believer that government needs to get some things right for capitalism and democracy to continue. And one of those things is to protect us against pandemics, another is national defense, another would be some version of a social welfare state so that people feel safe enough that they have a stake in the system and that they will continue to support capitalism and democracy. So my term, state capacity libertarianism, it's like beyond awkward. I never thought it would take off as a term, is simply to express we need these two sides of the coin, a government that is efficacious on some basic issues, but also capitalism and democracy. And that's the core of my, what you might call, political worldview. It's not linked to any party or any specific movement, but that's what I think is important. So the state capacity part is interesting. I think you described it as higher quality governance and government. One is, you know, question one is, is that currently a challenge? And two is, how do you achieve that? It's always a challenge. I actually think American state capacity right now is a bit higher than many people think. So we just did Operation Warp Speed, which was amazing. And it was the government that did it in conjunction with the private sector, as was appropriate. But I recall in April of 2020, reading experts in the New York Times saying, at the soonest a vaccine will be four years. And Operation Warp Speed did it basically in less than a year. If you look at the war on terror, we made some enormous mistakes. But if you simply ask the question, have we stopped large-scale attacks on domestic U.S. soil? We have done that, often by cutting off flows of money. And, you know, we could have done that without all of the mistakes. So our government still can get some things right. It's not impossible. It's not utopian. I just want at the margin that they do more of that and less of the nonsense where, say, the CDC takes the lead by banning all tests for COVID until they develop and send out their own. An enormous mistake at the time. But I know we can do better. We do better all the time. I'm curious as if we you know, talk about talent and we talk about government and governance. To what extent do the lessons that you've drawn about matching, finding talent apply in the public sphere? I worry that we don't have enough talent in government in some key ways. I think we have more talent than a lot of people realize, but especially at state and local level, as the opportunities in the private sector become more lucrative, I think it's just less frequently the case that the smartest person in town is the mayor than might have been the case 50 or 60 years ago. So I think senators are pretty talented. Our bureaucracy is full of talent, the Fed, Treasury in particular, but all over. What is it that uh, can be, do, do we just need to pay more? Paying more helps, but I don't think that's the full solution. There's something about prestige and status and social stratification, and even like the mating and, and dating markets, where the whole thing has to operate in sync. It's related to how to get more people to be scientists. I think, think simply doubling the wage for people who do, you know, nuclear physics. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but that alone doesn't do it. It's like what TV shows do people watch when they're eight or nine, where they think, maybe I want to be a scientist. Uh, how do their parents react when they say, maybe I want to be a scientist? Who are the mentors available in their high school and so on? So it's really quite systemic and it re requires a lot of complementary pieces. And there's not a single magic bullet. But the fact is, in the past, in some ways, we did better than we do now. 
and we can do better again. It's not utopian. It is possible. Got it. You're so prolific. You do so many different things. One of the things that you do is you have your own podcast, which is great, Conversations with Helen. Quite famously, you had a recent episode in which you had Mark Andreessen, the noted venture capitalist, on. And you were talking with him about uh, about crypto. Even in your latest book, you had mentioned you don't share others' degree of enthusiasm for crypto. You had asked Mark for different use cases of where these decentralized cryptography-enhanced technologies would be superior to other ways of, of doing things, whether it's paying for podcasts or what have you. I'd love to ask you, what, what are your views on these types of distributed ledger, crypto, blockchain, et cetera? I consider myself a crypto hopeful, but not a crypto convert. So I think there's a, a good chance a lot of these ideas will work out. If it's Web 3.0 in particular, I view Web 3.0 as a new way of defining property rights for something like virtual worlds or new worlds we would create on the internet in some fashion. And I think there's a reasonable chance that 50 years from now, they will just obviously be a big deal. Now, again, I'm not a convert, uh, but people got so upset at Mark's answer. They said, well, Mark didn't really have a convincing specific comeback. I would just say this. If you go back to 1992, me, you, you know, Mark, anyone, and someone says, what's the internet going to be good for? I don't actually think a totally convincing answer would be that easy. And if you tried to make money off the internet in 1992, I'm not really sure what you should do. There's not a Google or Facebook to, to put your money in, right? So possibly Web 3.0 right now is in a similar position. I think people should be supportive, but critical in a way that leads to improvement. What you see on social media, there's like boosters, like, okay, that's inevitable. But then people who are so viciously negative on Web 3.0 or anyone who supports it, or in this case, Mark, I think that's utterly unjustified. They don't understand how venture capital works. You take a lot of chances. The talent of the people who work on Web 3.0 is really very impressive. It doesn't mean they will succeed. But if you just ask, like, what's the stuff drawing really talented people? I have my own shortlist, but Web 3.0 and crypto definitely are on it. Doesn't mean I'm convinced they'll work. I'm not. I think Mark was actually writing the Mosaic browser back in 92 or right around that time. So Maybe, he was busy, yes. <laughs> busy at that time. What's on that short list of things that you might be hopeful for or are not yet a convert? Well, here's two things where I observe massive talent inflows. And I'm, I would say I'm, I'm more than hopeful on them. The first is computational biology. The number of young people I meet who say, I want to do computational biology, to me is utterly overwhelming. Now, I don't think I have the technical expertise to evaluate computational biology, but man, you look at how much smarts and effort it's attracting, I'm super bullish on it, more as a judge of character than anything. I'm more optimistic on that than crypto, I would say. And then the other thing that's attracting talent in intellectual life is effective altruism, which as I said before, it's not exactly my view. I agree with a lot of it. I don't agree with all of it. But if I just look, if I meet a smart young person who wants to do ideas, be a public intellectual, it's stunning to me how often that person is into effective altruism. And I just think you have to take that seriously. Again, you don't have to agree with all of it, but to wake up in the morning and say, this is what the smart people are doing. Like I should in some way be relating to this that is constructive and not just whining about it because it doesn't pick up on all of my hobby horses. 
And those are the three areas where I see massive inflows of talent, crypto, computational biology, effective altruism. You know, in computational biology, we had Jennifer Dadna on, actually, I think as our, you know, our, our premier episode, I asked her what someone who's interested in these topics should study in college. And to my surprise, she said computer science. She actually said, look, That's if you're answer. going to do biology, you need to actually understand how to do computer science. And that was super interesting. Uh, let me return to crypto just for another moment. You said hopeful, but not yet a convert. What would make you a convert? If I saw actual marketplace products, not just a crypto product to support some other part of the crypto space, but something that I would want to use, not because I think it's cool, and I do, but because I actually say when I wire money to Mexico rather than going to Western Union, might I use crypto? That day could come, but it is not here right now, and that would make me a convert. It's possible, but I am still waiting. Do you think it will be in remittances or payments? Is that, is that where you're most hopeful? Or A while back, Larry Summers asked me what I thought was the most likely major breakthrough for crypto. And I said remittances slash payments. So I, I think I would stick with that answer. But I'm quite sure that I don't know. It's like asking me about the internet in 1992. My answer, had I been asked, probably would have been quite poor. It just seems to me there's a lot of money on the table, a lot of waste, a lot of room for disruption, but we'll see. Got it. Well, you mentioned it, effective altruism. You, you know, just a few years ago, co-authored an article with Patrick Collison, who's a co-founder of Stripe, but also involved in, in the AA community, entitled, We Need a New Science of Progress. Progress being the combination of economic, technological, scientific, cultural, and organizational advancement. How's that going? Is there, are there progress studies now? I am very excited by the progress of progress studies, so to speak. So Patrick and I called for more people to study economic growth, to study how to improve science. There are now multiple institutions out there studying, or in some cases even lobbying, as to how to improve science with concrete policy recommendations and talented people working on staff and producing actual outputs and I'm thrilled to see this as a reality. So areas like, well, how should the NIH be run? Three years ago, it was very hard to find anything intelligent on that question from any point of view. Now it's a very live, active public debate. Well, should we change the NSF? You know, the new part we attach to the NIH, should it be run more or less along DARPA principles? I would say yes. But again, the point is not that I have all the answers, but we now have a very live and vivid, active public debate. And I think we're going to see a lot of improvement. And some of that has come from progress studies. We had Alex Stapp recently as well. as a, a, He's an Emergent Ventures winner, by the way. We were the first funder of his Institute for Progress. And Alec was formerly a student of mine. He's great. What about in the, the academia? Is, is there, are there progress studies being pursued other than, of course, your own, your own work? Well, Heidi Williams at Stanford would be one example. But I would say this, there's been plenty of progress studies for decades, indeed centuries. It's just way too small a part of the whole puzzle. So take two like very simple questions in economics. First, why did the East Asian economies grow so much? And second, why did the West have an industrial revolution? Whatever you think the answers are, in my view, those should be like 10 or 15% of the entire curriculum. They're the most important questions. As it stands now, I'm not sure they're 1%. So 
So they could be 1% and still there'd be a lot of papers in those areas. Clearly there are, right? But at the same time, in terms of where we devote our attention, what we actually debate, it's way undervalued, questions like that. Or just how to improve science. The economics of science is still not yet a large field. It is growing quickly. But it should be, in my opinion, one of the top fields. It's right now not in the top 30. Let me take things in a, a different tack. You do so many things. You're a university professor. You've blogged every day for how many years? Oh, it will be 20 years, I think, within a week. I'm not sure, but it's closing in on 20 years. Almost the anniversary. You do other writing. You're a, 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 a columnist. Uh, you run Emergent Ventures. A question that often comes up is, how do you do that all? What are your time management tricks? I don't think I have many tricks. So our child is grown. You could call that a trick, but that's obvious. Uh, I barely watch television. That's another obvious trick. The most important things I usually do first thing in the morning. I would say I work very steadily. I'm never burning the midnight oil. I'm never scrambling to make a deadline, never working at 3 a.m., go to bed every night by 11.30, wake up around 7, and just at a super steady pace, try to always be ahead of things. I'm not sure that works for everyone, but it's what I've done, and I don't really think it's tricks. I think it's common sense. I think a lot of people would love to go to bed at that time and wake up and work a little every day, and yet you seem to do more. Is but I don't work else? a little every day. Like I work the whole day, the whole night. And in that sense, like the work doesn't stop. And I, I don't have a social life that differs from my work life. So I'm very often out with people, talking with people, socializing with people. But it's not separate from my work. So the two happen together. You you often talk about practice, you know, this idea of what are asking somebody what are this what are the equivalent for doing skills for musicians? I mean, I once heard from the basketball coach, Bob Knight, you know, the best conditioning is playing basketball. Why would you do something else? To what extent is practice, should you do practice that's different than the actual thing you're trying to get better at? Or should you just do more of what you're trying to get better at? Maybe both. So I can tell you what I do for practice. I write every single day. I try to talk to smart people analytically every single day. Don't quite manage that. I try to read books and sometimes difficult material almost every single day. And I try to do some physical exercise every single day. It seems to me those help me a lot. Again, I'm not saying it's the formula for everyone. Now, are those like the things I'm doing or the things that are like a me? I don't know. I just do it and it seems good. Very good. All right. If you don't mind, instead of underrated, overrated, uh, we'll, we'll do a lightning round. A little bit Absolutely. more constrained. Okay, here we go. Number one, what's your favorite source for finding new things to read? People email me about books or review copies arrive on my doorstep. On a typical weekday, it's not surprising if I have five review copies. And typically from presses, that would publish the more serious works of interest to me. And every day I discover new books and occasionally on Twitter. How long does it take for you to read a book? It really depends on the book. I'm not an especially fast reader of fiction, but nonfiction, it's common. I read a few books a day. I just read very fast. I was born a hyperlexic. That's one of my blessings. And it gets back to time management. If you can read much faster than like comparably educated people, 
it's a big advantage. And I've always had that advantage. Through nothing I've ever did, it just was automatically the case. Who is your hero? I don't know that I have a hero. I think people are more good than bad, and most people have quite a bit of good in them. But I don't think I have a specific hero. If you could live in a place other than Northern Virginia, where would it be? It depends what level of income you're giving me. For living, I love Berlin, I love London, and I like to think I would love New York City, but I'm pretty sure I would hate it. So I'll say uh, Berlin and London, but London I would need to be, you know, earning well, or it's just no fun. Berlin is fun at any income level, pretty much, as long as you manage it all. It's getting more expensive, my understanding, though. True, but from a very low base. <laughs> oh, I love f- Los Angeles also. You're, you're a bit isolated out there, but I think it's America's best city. The best food, the best climate, the best scenery, the best comedy scene, an incredible music scene, excellent art museums, so many different parts of town to go to. That makes the list as well. Difficult traffic, though. What's your favorite dish at a restaurant? My favorite cuisines are real Mexican food, Sichuan food, Indian regional cuisine. So those are by far my favorites. What's your current go-to interview question? I don't have one anymore. It used to be, what are your open browser tabs at the moment? But now too many people are gaming that because they've heard about it. Uh, One that's very good for leaders is how ambitious are you? But it's not for general use, but it still works very well. What I like to do most of all now is just get the person talking about a book, movie, TV show that they are passionate about and see what is their understanding of the social characters and their relationships in that tale. It's not like a single question, but it's a single thing to do. And that's what I'm most enamored of in the moment. If you weren't doing what you are nowadays professionally, what would you be doing? Well, I'm doing a whole bunch of different things today professionally. So in that sense, the alternatives I'm doing, right? Could I imagine a career in publishing in some way? Well, yes, but I publish a blog and I write for Bloomberg. I have a career in publishing. So I don't know what to say. I don't think there's many things I would be good at. And the ones I am, I'm trying to do. How do you think this interview is going? It's been a lot of fun for me. And I think for McKinsey people, they're getting a very different sense than corporatized approaches to interviewing. But I think the world is ready for that. And what's one piece of advice you'd have for listeners of this podcast? There are two pieces of advice I have for almost everyone. Most other advice is context specific. But I would say get more and better mentors, no matter what is your station in life. And your mentors can be younger than you. And work on improving the quality of your small groups, your small groups of peers that you trade ideas with and exchange ideas or you're on WhatsApp together or you go out for beers or whatever it is you do. Improve the quality of your small groups ever and always. Tyler Cowan, thanks for sharing with us. Michael, thank you very much. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. 
The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.